0: Hello, thank you for joining us on this Week in Politics podcast to mark the anniversary, the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement on the 10th of April. And obviously there's many programmes, there's many events to mark the occasion. But what we want to do in these three podcasts is tell the stories that have sometimes been overlooked about, for instance, the people who worked behind the scenes, who made the politics happen. Also, the journalists and their search for truth and what was often very murky and tragic stories behind the troubles and the peace process. And today, I'm joined by some of the women then and now who made peace happen, because the other question about this 25th anniversary is, what are we celebrating exactly? What's been achieved And where is the peace process going? So I really, really am delighted to welcome from Belfast, Monica McWilliams, co-founder of the Women's Coalition and negotiator at that conference table in Castle Buildings at Stormont. Also there as part of the Irish government delegation was Liz O'Donnell, then a junior minister in the Fianna Fáil Progressive Democrat Coalition. Also with us, someone just 10 or 11 at the time that the Good Friday Agreement was signed, journalist Emma D'Souza. And another familiar phrase from that conference table is the SDIP negotiator and former MP Breeds Rogers. And as I say, you really are all very well- welcome. And it is a pleasure to be talking to some of the women because the women's contribution to the peace process was so significant and often overlooked. And I want to talk first about someone who's not with us, Liz O'Donnell. Uh, Momolum and the role that she took, because she was then the Secretary of State. And we're hearing a lot, you know, from all the men who were involved in bringing peace about. But talk to me about how critical Momolum was.
1: Mo was a very unusual politician. She was a very reforming, naturally reforming Labour woman, politician. So she was quite unusual in Northern Ireland. Uh, she was feisty, outspoken. Uh, so uh, many of the participants, particularly on the unionist side, were, were quite taken aback by her approach. But I do believe she was the right person um, at the right time. She was there when it was necessary for confidence building, particularly among nationalists. And I think genuinely, she was the first Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. Um, that listened and heard the grievance of nationalists in particular. And she was also um, very close to David Irvine as well of the, you know, who represented the Loyalist paramilitary party, the PUP. So she was great with everybody. Uh, I think that the fact that she was there made a huge difference. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, because she died so young, her role has been overlooked. But she made a really important um, um, contribution to the peace. And Monica, the, the
0: the word that you associate with Mo, Mo Molem as well is courage. The courage of a woman who did all of that while dealing with cancer. The courage of a woman who went into to talk to the loyalist prisoners behind bars. You know, the courage of a woman who'd whip off her wig behind the scenes and shock some of the people around the table. Talk to me about her indomitable heart.
2: Yes, Mo was an incredible woman. She was a breath of fresh air in terms of high-level politics. And she certainly, uh, when she walked in that very first day into the room, and she went around shaking everyone's hand and making herself known. And she was approachable. She had a brilliant intellect. And it often concerned me afterwards that when male writers focused on her, they talked about her language. Um, I talk about her skills. She had emotional intelligence as well as intellectual intelligence. And she brought both of those to the peace talks. And both, as you would imagine, are incredibly important because when you're trying to make a deal, the chemistry between the parties was not great. And she was the one creating that chemistry. And I saw her on the last night, barefoot, no wig, an intravenous drip in her arm and running around the corridors between the parties, between the rooms, with everything at stake and massive tension. And here was a woman who was ill, who was taking enormous risks for Northern Ireland. And as I knew later, um, and she told me many times, her heart was in our peace process. So she should be remembered for all of that. I often say, in fact, if we hadn't had Mo Molen, um doing what she was doing, building those relationships, um, and absolutely focusing on the clauses and the amendments and knowing what to accept and what not to accept, and that's a tough call for any British Secretary of State, um, then we might have been in a whole lot more trouble.
0: And your memories breeds of, of Mo Molum and, and her contribution to the peace process. And, and I suppose the irreverence of a woman and in a politics that had very often, because of the violence and so on, it had seemed to be dominated by men for so long, hadn't it?
3: Yes, well, Mo Molum was different Uh, people were used to um, everyone watching their P's and Q's and doing everything right. Mo came across as just a totally different person. She understood people. She was warm. Uh, she, she, She connected with people. She connected with all sides. I think the Unionists, as Liz said, had some difficulty with that. But she did get through to the Nationalists. She got the confidence of the Nationalists. She got the confidence of the Loyalists. She got the confidence of, uh, in a a way, eventually, I suppose you might say, grudging confidence from the Unionists. But if she hadn't been there in those early days, I don't think it would have worked because going in to talk to the loyalists was kind of unheard of. And I I think she did a lot of things against Mm. the advice of her own senior uh, civil servants. But she did it anyway because she was courageous She wasn't afraid of anything and she saw what needed to be done and she did it, regardless of the consequences for herself, but always thinking of the consequences for what she was trying to do. She
1: wanted it to go right.
0: You've used the word misogyny about some of the attitudes towards women around that table. Talk to me about that.
1: Well, to be honest, as a a female minister representing the Irish government, I think I escaped most of it. And um, George Mitchell wouldn't have tolerated it in in the negotiations anyway. And he called it out whenever it happened. Uh, But it didn't happen for the time I was there. Uh, There was no sort of open misogyny against the women in the room. But I know from talking to Monica uh, and her colleagues uh, that before in the political forum uh, outside of the talks, um, there was a lot of abuse and uh, disrespect shown to the women who had been elected. I mean, these had these women had a mandate to participate in the negotiations, which was hugely important because they had a mandate to bring their values and their mix of skills and their perspectives as women drawn from across across the community and they had different skills to the normal politicians. They came from the professions. There were social workers, there were community activists, uh, there were academics, researchers, teachers. So they brought completely different set of skills to the to the, the process, which was really helpful.
0: Monica, on that and, and, and the freshness of, of, if you like, that civic society or that centre coming together, around women and coming to the conference table?
2: Yeah, hugely important. I mean, at most peace tables, the armed groups are there, the constitutional parties are there. Um, But up until our time, there were very few actors from the civil society. They are called the non-state actors. Um, And today, the UN Resolution 1325 on Women, Peace and Security, that came two years after the peace agreement, and I'm delighted to say was based on the contribution of the women at the Peace Talks. Women like Liz and Breach, um, Barbara de Bruyn was in the background a year later in Sinn Féin, was Eileen Bell for the Alliance Party, very few women, you could have counted us on one hand, and then us two women from the Women's Coalition. But uh, as you said, and as Liz has just mentioned, it was that combination of skills. Uh, We were cross-community, we came from urban and rural areas, we came from different class and income backgrounds, Um, So you can imagine how difficult it was to actually build consensus inside the party when we were both Protestant, Catholic, Nationalist, Unionist and other. So the preparation we did every night, actually at this very table where I'm sitting now at the kitchen table, before we went to the peace talks every day, was how civil society in the communities was working. There wasn't just one peace process, there were many peace processes. And it was that that we wanted to bring to the table, that different perspective Mm -hmm. It was also a gender perspective. But we had other issues that we wanted to bring. And that was based on the fact that we were having a dialogue across our differences. Uh, So that was very important. And probably as a result of that, I should add, we did get a lot of insults. And we were told the only table you should be at is the table you're going to polish. You shouldn't be at this table. You haven't been elected. In fact, we had been elected. We had a mandate. We had stood in front of the people and we were one of the 10 parties elected. But every single day we were reminded that we were outsiders, and that suddenly broke broke something to get inside. Um, I'm not sure today that politicians would articulate that either on radio or camera, but they were articulating it back then, both on television and every opportunity they got to talk publicly, what are these women doing here? They have nothing to offer. And in fact, in the end, I'm very pleased to say that if we hadn't been uh, at the peace talks, there were clauses in that agreement about victims, integrated education, shared housing, a civic forum, a bill of rights um, that may not have had the prominence and certainly would not have been written into the agreement had there not been women from civil society present.
0: And Emma D'Souza, you were just a girl at the time that the agreement was signed. When you listened to these women, when you listen to them talk about that, and also at the time, you couldn't know, of course, the impact it would have on your life and future.
4: Of course, I, I had no idea how much the agreement would impact my own life personally and become really uh, such an important piece of work for me going forward. And it is incredible to be speaking here today with these women who sacrificed so much and took so many risks uh, in that period up to 1998 and after, to be able to deliver the peace agreement. And as Monica was just saying, you know, they brought forward um, really important me- mechanisms around social cohesion and reconciliation, things like the civic forum, things like integrated education, the language around victims' rights. Um, but what disappoints me, I suppose, is that many of those provisions, those provisions tabled by women and by civic society coming from that area are actually the ones that have been left languish over the last 25 years, where we're seeing those are the areas that really haven't been pushed forward, those areas around right. social cohesion. So
3: um, can, can I just yeah. say, You know, I think we shouldn't forget that there were more women in the peace process than appeared at the negotiations. There were many women over the years that have been forgotten. And I just want to remind people of Patricia McCluskey, who started the campaign for social justice, who marched in Dungannon. She was a doctor's wife, marched along with ordinary women to get their right to housing because they couldn't get public housing it, this was the, That was the first civil rights march, no, not now recognised as such, but to my mind it was. Uh, she was a very courageous woman who stood up in very, very difficult times in Northern Ireland when it it was not only not profitable, but it wasn't safe to stand up to be counted. And there was Adrina Stewart, who was in the civil rights campaign, in the early civil rights campaign, who was a, a unionist from a unionist background in East Belfast, who lost her job... Uh, as a teacher because she stood on a civil rights platform. There were many, many women. Bernadette Devlin is another woman who is still involved in in helping people and human rights. And although I may not agree with everything that Bernadette Devlin did, she certainly shone a light on on what was happening in Northern Ireland. So there were many, many other women who contributed in the lead-up to the peace process. So the peace process didn't start with a Good Friday Agreement.
0: Absolutely, and you know that's a point well made. And I also, think you, you know so many figures <laughs> like the late May blood, Monica. I want to bring you in here. And by the way, just for anyone who's watching this podcast, I know the picture is a little bit shaky from Monica. Apologies about that. That is absolutely poor. Monica is en route from Africa to Washington and has managed to squeeze us in here. And so none of the technical glitches uh, are anything to do with her. So please bear with us and all of that. Monica, go
2: ahead. Yes, I'd like to uh, back up what Breach is just saying that we did not fall out of the sky, which is what we were accused of when we walked in the first day to the peace talks. Like all women's networks and women's movements and social movements, we came from somewhere. And I knew all those women. I didn't, the only one I didn't know, and I'm sorry I didn't know, meet her, um, was Ms. McCluskey. But her husband, Kahn wrote to me uh, during the peace talks and said, let's never forget that it was women who started this social movement marching on the streets for their rights. So we came in on the back of that. I knew um, Edwina Stewart, and I remember her being sacked because she'd been on the civil rights marches. Breach had been on them, I had been on them. Um, And all of us, um, from that day, from the 70s onwards, we have been working way in the background as women do. And then when that moment came, that huge constitutional moment was declared. Um, It was because of that that we decided we could not Um, let it pass. Many of us women did not want to be in public life, did not want to be fired in as Breach had been, um, and had suffered the consequences over the years, as indeed of her colleagues in the political party, and particularly Austin Curry's wife, who had been marked really badly by loyalists, um, um, and terrible, terrible harm done to her. And many of those women were so courageous Um, That we decided that we needed to have that voice at the table. So I'm glad that there was a cross-community women's movement. And that's all that I can say in terms of us in six weeks getting together and managing to get elected. It was phenomenal. And it's probably now 25 years later that that's acknowledged. It wasn't acknowledged at the time.
0: And Liz O'Donnell, in terms of, you know, the 25 year anniversary, and I know many of you will be in Washington and there's big events and there's conferences and all that kind of stuff. You're all all busy in, in, in terms of the anniversary. What are we celebrating? If you'd known then the way it would be now, would you have been disappointed?
1: No, not at all. We're celebrating a hugely successful peace process, which ended a conflict that had caused so many deaths and over 47,000 injuries, serious injuries. I think we have to, no matter what happens, uh, we have to celebrate that we have a precious peace and that great transformations have happened on the island of Ireland uh, for the betterment of everybody. Um, And the politics was always going to be difficult. I think anyone who was there on the day, we knew it was only the start. It was only the beginning of putting in place a whole new framework of governance in northern ireland of relationships between northern ireland and the and the republic and between the united kingdom and ireland so it was a very complex set of you know agreements and proposals and clauses but um, uh, we have a new police service of Northern Ireland. We have a new justice system with the release of prisoners. We have peace. Uh, and although we don't have the institutions, which uh, it has only the institutions which are so important mm-hmm. to the agreement and to the balance of the agreement, um, it's very unfortunate that they have only sat fitfully yeah. over the twenty twenty five years. But I hope now that the Windsor Framework has been, you know, uh, offered. And it's, really, it's a really much better deal for the unionist community. And I hope that they will accept that and that we can get back to having working institutions which allow people to work together Um, to the betterment of everybody. And Breed's on that. And,
0: you know, had you known 25 years ago that we would be at this point in time 25 years later, Stormont not working. Geoffrey, who walked out 25 years ago on on David Trimble, Geoffrey Donaldson now facing his own uh, Rubicon moment. But I suppose the question is, is this structure working? Is it worth it when it's only sitting 40% of the time? Do you have misgivings about
3: what's been built? Well, the reality is it is not working as it was meant to work. And I agree with everything that Liz has said. The whole place has been transformed utterly. For people who didn't live through the troubles, they they can't even imagine the changes that that, have happened in the last number of years. However, uh, John Hume said at the end of the whole process, I remember very well, he was talking to us in his valedictory speech and he said, well, he said, the job from now on is to build on what we have got, and to deliver on the potential of the agreement, which is about reconciliation and real partnership. Mm-hmm. And he said, that is not going to be easy, but it has to be done. And I believe in the first few years, uh, when the Ulster Unionists worked with us, uh, the first few years of the agreement, I could see it beginning to work. I could see as Minister of Agriculture, particularly during foot and Mouth when we worked, closely with the unionist community, all communities, on one issue, which was a common issue in all our interests. And that's what John always said. We will find that our common interests far outweigh our differences. And that's what had to be done. So I think that that uh, whole idea of reconciliation and and real partnership has got lost along the way. There were far too many fights between political parties, uh, fights on TV, you know, back to the future sort of thing it was. So I think we need to get back to the spirit of the agreement. We need to really work the partnership. It's the best thing we've got for the future. It's not going to be easy... But it's it's the right thing to do.
0: I want to go back to Monica because we'll be losing her soon. But before I do, there's a point and I'd like you, Emma, to talk about um, because April will also mark four years since Leora McKee was killed and the young woman, again, a ceasefire baby. And she spoke about your generation as the ceasefire baby. And in one of, um, one of the very more noted articles that Leora McKee wrote, um, it was about the fact that suicide rates in Northern Ireland... Uh, 3,700 people roughly killed during the course of the Troubles up to 98. As you will know, Emma, as many people have died by suicide since and the rates particularly high in that ceasefire generation, those ceasefire babies who were supposed to profit from the peace. What happened?
4: Well, as Lyra so um, poignantly said herself, uh, we were the generation that was to reap the spoils of Peace and it just didn't reach uh, so many of us in the end. And I think that um, that line is, is really appropriate because in reality, whilst we do have a changed landscape where we have a generation that is growing up free from the violence of the past, Many of the young people growing up in Northern Ireland today are still growing up under the same division, same segregation as their parents and grandparents. They're growing up in an education system that remains segregated at 93%. They're growing up in a system where we don't have stable politics, where we have this division. Sectarianism is part and parcel of everyday life in Northern Ireland, it's still there. And I think as well as that we have the intergenerational trauma from the troubles that hasn't been addressed. We have evidence that shows that Northern Ireland still has a brain drain where the majority of young people are leaving and they're not coming back. And when you ask them why it is that they're leaving Northern Ireland and not returning, it's because of the divisions, it's because of the conflict, it's because we're not a reconciled place, not yet. So I think that um, what we should really be doing at this point, for me personally, as someone who's in that generation, is using this anniversary as an opportunity to assess what has worked, what hasn't worked, what's been delivered, what hasn't, and to actually really try to work the agreement because in reality, it's never been fully yeah. implemented or fully functional.
0: And Monica McWilliams, before we lose you, what do you say? Thank you. Yeah, you're right, Breeds. very well said. Monica McWilliams, before we lose you, what, what do you say to those ceasefire babies, to, to Emma's generation? And, and and the way what Emma was talking about there, the, the way that that trauma has continued for them?
2: Well, it's an unfinished business, and yes, it is sad that some of the things that we thought were going to be easy to implement, such as reparations for victims, such as trauma counseling for the next generation, and such as dealing with the past, 25 years later, we're still arguing over how that should happen. Um, retrospect is a great person to have at the table. Um, but we are where we are. I remember Mo of saying this will not be easy. Who said it was going to be easy? But what I've learned about peace building is it's an unfinished business. It goes on and on. And you build on what you've got, you bank it, and you move to the next stage. We didn't anticipate Brexit, which was, in my view, um, an act of constitutional self-harm. And so we had to start again dealing with that. Now, I hope that we will get through this. I'm sure we will. If anybody has any common sense, they'll see the benefits of being part of the European Union and part of the UK market, and therein lies the opportunities for the young people. I actually am still working as a commissioner to disband paramilitaries. I don't want those young people to be rich pickings for the alphabet soup of paramilitaries, which is what's currently happening, where you have a lot of deprivation um, and a lack of education in the communities that didn't benefit from the peace dividend. But a lot of good things has happened, have happened, and. I am aware now of the massive amount of community development that is going on that isn't recorded by interviews or by television pictures, but is going on in the background. And indeed, I pay tribute to people like Emma and that generation coming who are prepared to take the baton and run Mm -hmm. with it now. And that's what you do in terms of peace building and social movements. Northern Ireland is a much better place. When people ask me what difference does peace make, it makes all the difference in the world and as someone who's just today returned from South Sudan I can certainly see that and the capacity building the incredible work that women are doing all over the world as we celebrate International Women's Day um, and here in Northern Ireland so it's people like Leary McKee who who lost her life who stood up and spoke out Um, and many of those now that Emma's organising coming together to create a civic forum like your c- Citizens' Assembly in the Republic of Ireland, to deal with some of these difficult issues that politicians still find too controversial. And that's really important for participatory democracy. So we've learned a lot, uh, we learn from our mistakes, um, but we should celebrate. I believe that most people are talking about marking it as if it was um, one of those serial birthdays that you don't want to hear about. <laughs> um, but I do think we need to commemorate it and mark it and celebrate it. Um, because if anybody had been around like Breach and Liz and myself all those years ago, um, you would have known that we were practically living from day to day, wondering who was going to be next. What funerals we were going to be going to, what bombs we were going to be running from. Those days are over. We have managed the conflict. Now we have to truly start resolving it and transforming it.
0: And it's great to know that you are still doing that work in Africa and around the world uh, in building peace processes and making... Uh, making them resilient. Um, That's a point, actually, and maybe we'll conclude on this. Um, You know, people talk about why it matters. And I think that's really well made that point. Because I I say every morning we were waking up and, you know, people would say in the South, oh, everyone switched off. Everyone woke up every day. And, you know, somebody had died in an appalling, appalling manner. Mm -hmm. You know, children had been, it, it was... And, you know, in in the North, people had no choice but to walk that reality every day. And people did care. And I think we saw that in the end, didn't we, 25 years ago when people came out and voted, that it wasn't that people had been switched off or they didn't care. They cared
1: so much. It had felt so hopeless for so long. So there was a huge appetite for peace at uh, North and South. And I think that's that's what drove people to transcend themselves and to move from their fixed positions. And that's what George Mitchell always said to us. You had to move from fixed positions to a place where accommodation Mm -hmm. can be found. And that's what everybody did. We all had to give up something. I mean, the Irish people voted to change uh, Articles 2 and 3 of the Irish Constitution. And we always thought in the past that was anathema. But in the end, people said, OK, it's fair. We can't enforce this on a million Protestants anyway. We can't force people into United Ireland. So let it be when they agree, when the majority of people in Northern Ireland decide they want to do whatever they want to do to stay in the United Kingdom. And then it was fair to loyalism and to the unionists to say the status quo is as is uh, until such time as the people of of Northern Ireland in all of their diversity and in peace change their mind or stay the way it is. What
3: really is missing now, I think, from... You're absolutely right in everything you say, but I think what's really missing now is courageous leadership. If you think of the leadership that had to be given, for instance, by David Trimble, yeah. who knew that he was not only dealing with dissension within his own party, but in the ranks of the DUP, outside his own party, who were criticising every move, and to, that he was able had, had the leadership and the courage to deliver eventually the process. I think people should not forget how difficult that was for so many people and for people to acknowledge that things that had happened in the past were wrong and had to be rectified. And I think the problem now is that people still, there are still people who will not recognise that what happened in the, in the past was wrong. And that is feeding into what we're seeing now with the dissidents. So there is leadership still required right across the island on all sections and of all leaders. And Emma,
0: I want to bring you in um, again to conclude maybe with a quote from Lyra McKee who said she didn't want <clears throat> a united Ireland or a stronger union. She just wanted a better life. So is Northern Ireland a better place place now for you growing up 25 years later? Do you believe it's heading in a better direction?
4: I believe certainly Northern Ireland is a far better place than it was. But I do think that we have to recognise that peace is a process uh, and it's a a long process uh, for those of us on this island. And also it's important to recognise that when we talk about the peace process and the Good Friday Agreement, we're talking about... A responsibility that everyone has on this island not just some northern affair for us to take care of in the north and i think sometimes that can can seep into a thinking i think that um, really what we need to focus in on in this really critical year is how we can take the aspirations and the spirit of the good friday agreement and really see that work through and that now falls to my generation to do that it's not on the shoulders of the peace generation to come forward and see the work of the good fighting. And that civic
0: element that Monica was talking about, how critical to try and re-engage that.
4: It's so critical because, you know, as uh, Liz was saying, people wanted peace. And I suppose we're talking about the unheard stories. And that's an unheard story, is the fact that people came out and voted in such large numbers that they took that leap of faith. They said, this is what we want. We want to see this happen. And they chose peace. And sometimes I think that that story is unheard, it's less recognized. And I think that the civic element is really important. We see that really communities have never lacked ideas, but what they are lacking is the right framework and structure to harness those ideas. There was, of course, a commitment in the Good Friday Agreement for the Civic Forum, but that was disbanded after two years. So now what we're doing in Northern Ireland is we're creating a new civic movement that is specifically trying to get grassroots community-based people to re-engage with the peace process to show that they have agency and ownership and they have a role to play. So we're now doing that for the next 18 months, specifically around the anniversary, to try and re-engage societies around making it work.
0: Well, that's a good note to end on. It really has been my pleasure to talk to you all today um, and to pay tribute to the work that so many women, as you say, so many women, uh, put in over the years and continue to put in and our hopes now resting on new generations so my thanks to all our guests Monica Williams, co-founder of the Women's Coalition who joined us on Belfast former junior minister at the Department of Foreign Affairs Liz O'Donnell journalist Emma D'Souza and SDLP negotiator and former MP Breeze Rogers and remember you can subscribe to our podcast which is available on all platforms under the RTE Your Politics brand thank you Look forward to talking to you in the other two broadcasts. Till then, goodbye.